Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on July the 22nd, 2013. For newcomers, I always suggest you make good use of the website CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. I go through the system, the big system that's here long before you were born, your parents, your grandparents, a system that was set up over a over hundred years ago to bring in a new type of society across the whole planet. And it was brought in by the richest people at that time on the planet. And uh, they planned to take, uh, that eugenics was at the top of the, the whole, the whole thing, the whole structure of society. Uh, the, the, the fittest were already born. They'd acquired the, an accumulation of incredible wealth at that time, especially through the British Empire. And this, this idea was born in London itself, in the city. And they decided to form foundations, these boys. Foundations that would be tax exempt and they could therefore fund what they called parallel governments. I go through the history of this. I'd bring in Carol Quigley. Uh, Carol Quigley was the historian for this same group that had a branch in America called the Council on Foreign Relations. And he said it quite, quite actually, he says, they sent emissaries across the world to take over all of the resources of the world way back then, in fact, and they're still doing it today. That's why they're going after all the food supply, all the water supply, all energy, etc., etc., all belonging to the same big club at the top. The Royal Institute of International Affairs, a private organization, and that's what runs as really private organizations. So to learn the history of it and what's happening and why things are happening today the way that they are, you have to go through the history of the, the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, Royal Institute of International Affairs, to see who set up the Bank for International Settlements and all the other banking cartels that we have today running the world, the IMF, uh, the, the private central banks, etc., all one big cartel. And they said they'd take over the world eventually by pure economics, right? and the big hammer would be the banking system, and that's where we are today. So remember, too, you are the audience that bring me to you. You can help me take along here by buying the books and discs at CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com to find out the art of chronology, because that's how we're controlled, is by cons one after another. The noble lies, many, many kinds of noble lies, but we're all peasants at the bottom, we wouldn't understand these things, we wouldn't go along with the big plans if we knew about them, because we're too simple to understand them for the greater good and all that. And so I, I break it down. So if to buy the books and discs, remember, you can, from the US to Canada, you can still use personal checks or international postal money orders, or you can use PayPal or send cash. Across the world, Western Union, MoneyGram, and PayPal, uh, and straight donations are really seriously welcome. We can find out how to do it all again if you go into CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. Now, we, we truly are going through tremendous shifts, and 
we're so used to it, we're kind of beaten down by talks of globalism, uh, United Nations agreements that, that every country signs every year. So many of them are signed every year, you can't keep up with them. The armies and armies of non-governmental organizations that seem to have the new way of representing supposedly the people. We don't elect non-governmental organizations. They're owned by the big foundations, the private foundations. These are their armies that they send to government to lobby for big changes. And the government's in on the big, the big con, of course, and they're so, so happy to receive them and rubber stamp them. Just like the Rio Air Summit and many, many more, they were done by a private organization. Every country signed on to it. That led to the Kyoto conferences and the carbon taxes, etc., etc. All planned a long, long time ago. And eventually, unfortunately, your excess spending money is to go in essentials only. That's where they're heading towards. Beer essentials. Things that you need for basic survival. And all be done in taxes and increases in energy costs, food costs, etc., etc. So, you find that the public really have no say in anything, really haven't had any say in anything at all for an awful, awful long time. The media itself, of course, all the, the moguls and media and the top reporters are all members of the same CFR. So they know the big agenda too. Their job is to create spin and, and uh, get arguments going amongst the general population. They give us topics to for the rabble, they say, topics for the rabble, emotive topics. And uh, I don't even fall into the racial card they're put out right now, of course, because apart from that, there's nothing you can do about it. And it's, it's all done. And uh, and it's meant just to get you all beefed up and distracted as big, big agreements are signed across the world that affect everyone. They're distractions, you see. But we're given lots of these emotive topics every day uh, to leave you in frustration. To make you feel that you have no say in anything, there's nothing that you can really do, etc. And it's a training. And plus, since the Levison inquiry leading to the, to the, the new regulations for journalists, uh, plus the one in Australia and all Commonwealth countries, you'll find that all the media has gone on board with a form of self-censorship. You'll notice the stories are very dry. Uh, there, there are lots and lots of trivia out there put out, and um, there's no beef in anything at all, you might say. Nothing to eat your teeth into, nothing to really learn. And this is all done by intent, because this is a new form of journalism. When you find that most, most newspapers are fr- the front page on the Royal Baby in Britain, uh, are splattered everywhere uh, across different countries that have nothing to do with Britain, you know something's going on. And these are all distractions and trivia, etc., etc. Because the new form of government is to train the public, and it has been doing it mainly, well, faster and faster, I'd say, since 9-11, uh, to, to train you that, that an authoritarian system now runs all of us. That's really the training we're all getting. As I say, we get topics to argue about amongst ourselves, but there's no, it's always a done deal by the time you read it. And you'll find now with the carbon taxes, for instance, there's a big declaration to be signed in November by the G20 countries to affect all of us, and energy taxes, carbon taxes, and so on. And they really want to create extreme weather events before that's all, before November comes through, so keep your eyes open for it. And they can certainly do it, because weather control is an old, old thing. It's old, folks. And I'm not talking about silver oxide in the air. I'm talking about way advanced more methods than that. They've been doing it steadily since 1998 in the Western countries. Now, as you see the states, the U.S. Now, I've mentioned it many, many times before. None of the people 
of any country had any say in the construction of the World Trade Organization. The Royal Institute of International Affairs, the private club that formed the United Nations, by the way, uh, they wrote up the charter to draft Europe together. They wrote up, wrote, wrote, they wrote up the NAFTA agreement on the, with the CFR branch for the whole of the Americas. None of this was put forward to the general population that private organizations working towards a very old agenda, a global agenda, were drafting up our future for us. And the World Trade Organization, too, is an organization they used to to uh, sign agreements to transfer all of the uh, construction and, and uh, factories and so on across to China quite a few years ago now. But uh, the general public weren't even told it was going on. At that time, if you'd said the World Trade Organization, they'd, they'd never heard of it before. And prior to that, too, the Western countries have been training Chinese engineering students for years before they had factories to go back to and work in. So everything's planned like a long-term business plan. And it's, it's done in, in stages, just like the, the, the very well-known 50, 100-year phases of the United Nations, of the Communist Manifesto, too. That's how the Soviets ran their different plans. And you'll still see that coming out yet from the United Nations 50-year plan for this, 25-year plan for something else, etc. That's how it's done. A big business plan. And when they decided to, to take all of the factories out to China and make it impossible for anybody left behind to compete, because you can't compete with the wages they give their workers in China, everyone had to go eventually. Uh, they also said that we'll help you move to China. So we paid those characters, those factory owners, and their factory bosses, the top leads and so on, initially to move over to China and set up the factories there. The taxpayers of the Western countries all paid for their own jobs to leave their shores. And they call this democracy. Back with more after this. Hi folks, we're back cutting through the matrix. Now this organization, CFR, Royal Institute of International Affairs, they knew darn well what uh, the effects would have on the Western world when their factories left to go to China. And they, they factored all that in. They created a massive welfare state to try and tide things over, before, getting all ready beforehand, of course. But they had no, no intention of replacing uh, those jobs with anything else. They really had no intention. And it's like the U.S., Canada, and other countries are being wrung dry right now. All they can export really from Canada, is, for instance, is uh, raw materials to China. Uh, there's not much else left to export. And, of course, some grain, etc. But now you're in the grain market, this world grain market, and everyone's competing. It's a big, big business. But the, the, the places that go hit hardest, of course, the big factory towns were all left defunct. And there's an article today, it's 25 facts about the fall of Detroit that will leave you shaking your head. It's so sad to watch America's greatest cities die. One of, them, the great, one of the greatest cities, a horrible death, it says. Once upon a time, the city of Detroit was a teeming metropolis of 1.8 million people, and it had the highest per capita income in the U.S. Now it's a rotting, decaying hellhole of about 700,000 people that the rest of the world makes jokes about. 
This is on Thursday. We learned that the decision had been made for the city of Detroit to formally file for bankruptcy, nine bankruptcy. It was going to be the largest municipal bankruptcy in the history of the U.S. by far. But on Friday, it was revealed uh, that, that uh, it was stopped at least temporarily by an Ingham, uh, an Ingham uh, County judge. She ruled that Detroit's bankruptcy filing violates the Michigan Constitution because it would result in a reduced pension payments uh, and so on for retired workers. She also stated that Detroit's bankruptcy filing was also not honoring the U.S. president who, who took Detroit's auto companies as out of bankruptcy. And she ordered that a copy of her judgment be sent to Barack Obama. And it says here, there's 25 facts that people should know about Detroit. It says at this point, the city of Detroit owes money to more than 100,000 creditors. And some of them are big, big businesses. Detroit is facing $20 billion in debt and unfounded liabilities. It breaks down to more than 25,000 per resident. Back in 1960, the city of Detroit actually had the highest per capita income in the entire nation. In 1950, there were about 296,000 manufacturing jobs in Detroit. Today, there are less than 27,000. Between December 2000 and December 2010, 48% of the manufacturing jobs in the state of Michigan were lost. There are lots of houses available for sale in Detroit right now for $500 or less. At this point, there are approximately 70,000 abandoned homes in the city. And one-third of Detroit's 140 square miles is either vacant or derelict. An astounding uh, 47% of the residents of the city of Detroit are functionary, functionally illiterate, 47%. Less than half the residents of Detroit over the age of 16 are, are working at this point. It says, if you can believe it, 60% of all the children in the city of Detroit are living in poverty. Detroit was once the fourth largest city in the U.S., but over the past six years, the population of Detroit has fallen by 63%. And the city of Detroit is now very heavily dependent on the tax revenue. It pulls in from the casinos in the city. Imagine putting casinos in a place that was utterly <laughs> impoverished, because a lot of the people there, too, uh, the only way out of poverty is to win something. That's, that's what they do all over the world, the same con. Since right now Detroit is bringing in about $11 million a month in tax revenue from the casinos, but it doesn't end up with the people you know, and all the promises they always make. I haven't found a, a case of casinos actually putting cash back and so on and so on. And since there are 70 Superfund hazardous waste sites in Detroit and 40% of the streetlights don't work anymore, only about a third of the ambulances are running. Some ambulances in the city of Detroit have been used for so long that they have more than 250,000 miles on them. Two-thirds of the parks in the city of Detroit have been permanently closed down since 2008. The size of the police force in Detroit has been cut by about 40% over the past 10 years. When you call the police in Detroit, it takes an average of 58 minutes to respond. And due to budget cutbacks, most police stations in Detroit are now closed to the public for 16 hours a day. The violent crime rate in Detroit is five times higher than the national average. The murder rate in Detroit is 11 times higher than it is in New York City. Today, police solve less than 10% of the crimes that are committed there in Detroit. Crime has gotten so bad in there that even the police are telling people to enter Detroit at your own risk. It's easy to point to fingers and mock Detroit, but the truth is that the rest of America is going down the exact same path that Detroit has gone down. Detroit just got there first. All over the country, there are hundreds of state and local governments that are also on the verge of financial ruin. So 
that's more like a, a factual breakdown uh, uh, some stories and other things you're going to see. Because obviously if you take uh, work out of the country uh, and put it elsewhere, uh, there's a lot of people left back home with nothing to do. Uh, children are growing up, of course, uh, with no future and you get nothing but crime and so on if they're going to survive at all. And it's a, it's a usual outcome. Also, too, we're in, a, we're in a state now of really big brother in so many ways, never mind all the exposés about the NSA and, and uh, MI6 being tied in with it, etc. I think it's all global anyway, this whole system, of course. And I've showed you all the, the Google uh, uh, stations, all the, all the hubs, they call them, where everyone's tied into and all the spy agencies are involved and tapping everyone's data. Constantly on a daily basis. This is the new, the new, uh, totalitarian system under a form of socialism. And I've said this for a long time, that the richest men on the planet that formed the Royal Institute of International Affairs and lots of other foundations they, they also formed to specialize in other areas. They also decided to use a form of socialism because they, they actually admired communism for having big bureaucracies that took care of all the public, multi-layered government, you might say, government agencies, uh, and it keeps everyone in their place, you might say. So they like that type of government, and the bankers love it at the top. The international moneylenders love that because they simply get governments to borrow from them, uh, rather than individuals or individual states, for instance, that they get governments to borrow from them, and governments are guaranteed to tax the public to get it back. So get it be repaid. This is the system they're in today. But... um Obamacare also is a big part of the, the spying system as well for complete data and so on. It says, would you trust thousands of low-level federal bureaucrats and contractors with one-touch access to your private financial and medical information? Under Obamacare, you won't have any choice. As the Obamacare train wreck begins to gather steam, there's increasing concern in Congress over something called the Federal Data Services Hub. The Data Hub is a comprehensive database of personal information being established by the Department of Health and Human Services to implement the federally facilitated health insurance exchanges. The purpose of the Data Hub, according to a June 2013 Government Accountability Office report, I've got a link for it here. Remember, I'll put these things up at the end of the night, so cutting through the matrix.com. It says, is to provide electronic near real-time access to federal data and access to state and third-party data sources needed to verify consumer eligibility information. In these days of secret domestic surveillance by the intelligence community, rogue IRS, IRS officials and state tax agencies using private information for political purposes and police electronically logging every license plate that passes by, the idea of central data, centralized data hub is making lawmakers and citizens nervous. No kidding, eh? Back with more after this. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. We're back cutting through the matrix, talking about the health, the, it's basically called the Federal Data Services Hub. And it says, people should be uh, nervous about this. It says, the potential for abuse is enormous. The massive centralized database will include comprehensive personal information, such as income and financial data, 
family size, citizenship, immigration status, incarceration status, social security numbers, and private health information. It will compile dossiers based on information obtained from the IRS, Department of Homeland Security, Department of Defense, the Veterans Administration, Office of Personal Management, and Social Security Administration, state Medicaid databases, and for some reason, the Peace Corps. No kidding. The Data Hub will provide web-based one-stop shopping for prying into people's personal affairs. Not to fear, the HHS says the Data Hub will be completely secure. Well, they always say that, but you can see Britain, who's way ahead of the U.S., and all the leaks have been put out there over many years, in fact. It says... uh, is this, is this going to be secure? Secure like all the information that's been made public in the WikiLeaks era? These days, no government agency can realistically claim that private information will be kept private, especially when it's been made so accessible. Putting everyone's personal information in one place only simplifies the challenge for those looking into hack onto, into the system. However, the hacker's threat is the least of the database hub worries. The hub will be used on a daily basis by so-called navigators, which according to the GAO are community and consumer-focused non-profit groups to which exchanges award grants to provide fair and impartial public education. So here's your NGOs again involved. You don't vote in. The work for the big foundations are going to be in charge of this thing and the general public. This is unreferred uh, consumers as appropriate for further assistance. Thousands of such people will have unfettered access to the data hub, but there are only sketchy guidelines on how they will be higher trained and monitored. Given the slapdash, incoherent way Obamacare is being implemented, the prospect for quality control is low. And the Obama administration's track record of sweetheart deals, no-bid, sole-source contracting, and other means of rewarding people with insider access means the data hub will be firmly in the hands of trusted White House loyalists. So if you think that the IRS targeting the Tea Party groups was bad, just wait for the Obamacare navigators to be unleashed. Trust us, the administration says, no one will abuse the data hub. Sure, because this, that has worked out so well in the past, it says. But this is the system. It's way beyond Stasi, East Germany, way beyond that. And uh, it would be, be the socialist dream for, for Soviet Russia if they'd had it then, because uh, they, they had to use spies for everything, basically, and hire ordinary folk to spy on neighbors, etc. So this is to get all your data, all your data in one system. And that's, that's a tremendous power you have. Tremendous power, folks. Also, this ad, too, from the, the National Law Review, it says, Brain Spray and the Law. It's quite an interesting article. Now that we can capture and use the signals emitted by human brains, which they can, actually, it says we should consider whether brain signals are public property. If your face and voice become available to the public through use, it's the same true for your thoughts uh, when they can be read by others. Several recent news items have illustrated the progress humans have made in understanding the brain's workings and harnessing an active brain for practical purposes. For example, this week's Duke University researcher Miguel Nicolilis used microchips and the Internet to connect the brains of two mice on different continents so that the thoughts of one can influence the actions of the other. Much of Dr. Nicolilis' work involved creating an exoskeleton that a paralyzed person could operate with brain signals. They always say it's going to be used initially to help uh, people with uh, paralysis and so on. It's from the, the military-industrial complex is behind everything, folks. It's always weaponry first. 
Similarly, uh, University of Pittsburgh researcher Andrew Schwartz has been working since 2006 to find ways for a person to control a robotic arm with only brain signals. In February 2013, surgeons implanted four microchips in a paralyzed patient's brain that translate her brain feelings or signals into movements in robotic equipment. 60 Minutes and ABC News showed a video of the Pittsburgh patient feeding herself ice cream through brain signals to a robotic arm. Such scientific work involved detecting brain signals seems like science fiction, but the technology is available right now and will only improve over time and soon will be available commercially. Right now, the most rudimentary brain-driven technology can be purchased. High-end toy emporium Hamisher and Schlemmer sells a telekinetic obstacle course, it's called, that uses focused brain waves to maneuver a ball through an obstacle course. The game comes with a headband to read your brain signals and then wirelessly transmit those signals to the game's air fan, which increases or decreases speed depending on your signal. And it blows the foam ball around an obstacle force. And this is Australian scientist and entrepreneur Tan Lee, uh, the founder of Emotive Life Science, has created a headset that serves as an interface for reading, reading the wearer's brain waves, making it possible to control virtual and physical objects with directed thoughts. Eventually, the headsets will be conditioned for diagnostic use, but current products using the brain interface headset for video games, allowing users to drive virtual race cars with their concentrated thoughts. So it comes down to once this is there for access, and you won't even know they're being accessed half the time, uh, or most of the time perhaps, um, who owns your thoughts? Who owns your thoughts, folks? Think about it. Think of, can you imagine having a patent, you're sitting daydreaming about the patent and the diagrams and so on, and it's stolen from you, you could never prove it. I can see that would be one news that will be used right away. But I'll put this link up tonight just to let you see too. Plus it says, is Google planning a microchip for people's brains? This is another article. The engineering boss at Internet Giant says sci-fi style technology will begin by helping disabled people control wheelchairs. Again, the usual rubbish that they, remember DARPA was doing it too. DARPA makes weapons to kill folk. And they said they were going to help people with paraplegic conditions. So it says, um, it faces a major backlash over claims that colluded with US authorities to open a backdoor to users' personal information. So these guys, you can really trust Google, right? But they nevertheless intends to leverage the wealth of data holds on people to offer them increasingly personalized search results. The ultimate ambition is to get inside users' heads with microchips that will download search results straight into their brains. And it says online advertising giant Google's new wearable accessories are merely a stepping stone to its ultimate ambition, which is a microchip which can be embedded in the brain. The company, which uses its search, email, and other service to funnel personalized advertising to users, is currently trialing prototypes of its class, called as a glass device, which is worn like a pair of glasses. But Google is taking its future in a new service which will use the information it holds on registered users to automatically predict their search needs and present them with the data they want. The ultimate ambition is to literally get inside the users' heads using search queries to read their thoughts and then fulfilling the data needs by sending results directly to microchips implanted into people's brains. As is Ben Gomes, uh, Google's vice president of search, told The Independent that the sinister-sounding vision is far from a sci-fi fantasy and that research had already begun with such chips to help disable people steer their wheelchairs. 
They're getting a few, uh, a few senses of direction with the wheelchair, but getting from there to actual words is a long way off, he said. We have to do this in the brain a lot better to make the, that interaction possible. We have patience for that to happen, but the pieces of technology have to develop. So they are working on this whole thing very, very fast. And I wouldn't be surprised at a high level they've actually got it already. I'm pretty sure they will have, because uh, they never disclose to the general public what they actually have. Also, here's where it's going with Big Brother. And I've mentioned before that Britain is way ahead in most countries. I will say look at it, because it's the flagship for the world to, to copy. And uh, it really is, uh, and, and all, all different big programs on the go. But it says, now I've mentioned before about the Girfec project, for instance, in Scotland, which is uh, an advocate from the government, is, is uh, advocated for every child from birth, really. Like a social worker is, is attached to this child from birth and goes through the, a good part of their life with them. And the, what they said, too, on the, on the list of uh, things the social worker is looking for, uh, and all these psychological examinations they do on the child from the age of two months, by the way, onwards, is for a risk of, of basically uh, extremism or racism. Not kidding. This is the world. This is the totally controlled Orwellian society. It's here, folks, and it ain't been implemented. And it says hundreds of children are now identified as an extremist risk. They become extremists. More than 100 children aged under 12, including a three-year-old, have been identified as future extremists or at risk of radicalization, the Daily Telegraph Telegraph can disclose. The youngsters are amongst more than 750 children of school age who have been reported to the authorities because of worrying behavior. It includes drawings of bombs and alarming messages as well as associating with suspected fanatics. About three years old. The children have all been referred to the Channel Project, which is run by the Home Office. That's the British Home Office. It's part of the War Office, actually. An association of chief police officers and designed to stop vulnerable police uh, people being drawn into extremism. A total of 2,653 referrals of both adults and children have been made since the scheme was launched in the wake of the July 7th suicide attacks, 2005. Those reporting individuals include teachers, parents, youth workers, neighbours, and even bin men. It's like the Stasi. That's what they did in, in, in communist East Germany. The majority of referrals involved concerns over vulnerability to Islamist extremism, but almost 400 cases involve far-right radicalization. Police leaders last night said the project, which has been gradually rolled out nationally, is now recognised as a vital tool in protecting communities. It's also seen as all the more important amid the growing terror threat from so-called lone wolf fanatics who radicalize themselves over the internet. However, civil liberty groups have warned the project encourages people to spy on their neighbors. I mean, it's it's all here, folks. Big Brother's here. Back with more after this. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt. This is Cutting Through the Matrix. 
Also, you find that everything out there really is to, to collect data on you or all, you know, alter your behavior or whatever else. But it says Netflix, aside from delivering streaming video to, con- to consumers, also wants to provide open source software, Netflix OSS to tech vendors. Netflix, in its quest to fill gaps in Amazon web services, come up with more than a dozen tools, including the popular Chaos Monkey for testing web application resiliency. And now Netflix OSS has got a, a pretty big fish on the line, IBM. Now IBM, uh, with the big masters of the world, were given the sole right to go across the world to set up the smart grid worldwide. Smart meters and so on, everything smart, smart business, you name it. And, um, and no one, you know, it's never gone to, again, any kind of vote from the general population for any of this to be done. It's done way above government level because what runs the world is not government. The government is there to rubber stamp with big corporations, uh, push forward. And that's well understood amongst those in government too. But anyway, that they're teaming up, as I say, with IBM. Now, when IBM has its different meetings uh, throughout the year, you find every international corporation that anybody attends, they must attend IBM. They're the big guys for all of this. But this article goes into IBM, its relationship with cloud and all the rest of it, and how they collect lots and lots and lots of data. That's just never ending, actually. And this article here, it says two, it goes on with it too. It says multiple profiles are coming to your Netflix account. And it says um, multiple users may soon be use, able to use the most of the same Netflix account by way of numerous Facebook logins and the same subscription. So there's, there's the carrot. That's the dream of Netflix, chief product officer and so on. One of the benefits of Netflix is its recommendations engine, which offers supreme personalized genre selections based on how you've rated other films. And it says, but if you're sharing an account with the rest of your household, these could become diluted quickly by your cohabitants' personal, some might say terrible tastes. But the whole idea is to find out who else is in, in all this, this uh, data. And they're going into, I think they're actually making a deal with Facebook as well. So they get all your data uh, about you. It's another personality profiling idea, how your, who your friends are, why they like the same movies, and that helps them tell a lot about the people involved who are watching this kind of stuff, etc., etc., and who their friends are. So it's more collection of data on individuals. And also this article too says, new microelectrode brain chip detects neuronal activity and unprecedented high resolution. Researchers of the Department of Biosystems Science and Engineering of ETH Zurich were able to measure the speed of neuronal signal conduction along segments of single axons in neuronal cultures by using high-resolution electrical methods. That bioengineers are now searching for plausible explanations for the large conduction speed variations. And to write a little piece of text, it says, The brain sends commands to arms and fingers to tap on the keyboard. Neuronal cells with their cable-like extensions, such as axons, transfer this information as electrical impulses that trigger the muscles to move. The axonal signal speed can be up to 100 megabits a second, I guess, in myelinated axons along the spinal cord. For a long time, scientists assumed that axonal signal conduction is by and large digital, Either there's a signal or there is no signal. It's one or a zero. So this goes into, again, where it's all going to as they go ahead, rushing ahead, trying to get this brain chip all perfected for everyone to, to, to have, you understand. And all you have to get is some celebrity to say, some really popular celebrity in vogue, to say that they've got one and the rest will flood to it. 
They might even give it snob appeal, you know, platinum model, gold model, down to bronze. You know. I wouldn't be surprised at all. And also this article too is to do with uh, national police road blitzes. We've all heard about the road blitzes from England and the US has them, Canada has them too. When that government wants more money coming in, especially local government or city government, they tell the cops to go out and do these blitzes and get the folk on anything they can to bring in cash. But in Britain, they actually have contests to bring in different uh, police forces to see if we can get the most tickets handed out. Just like a big fun game for them to persecute the public. But uh, they had a national blitz. A national. This is the first time they've had a national blitz. Cops blitz overseas criminals in Britain. It says. And this is, again, uh, the lead parts to give you the premise to make you swallow that, to try and make it plausible for the reason they did it. Fugitive gangsters were last night amongst at least 115 foreign crooks uh, caught across the UK after cops blitzed overseas motors using our roads. The mammoth dragnet for wanted criminals hiding out here lasted five days. A five-day blitz, police blitz. Can you imagine a cost for that? Involves 17 police forces sweeping on foreign registered vehicles. Wouldn't it just be the foreign ones, folks? It says, um, people wanted for human trafficking, money laundering and violence were amongst those collared in their counterintelligence-led crackdown during which forces used automatic number plate recognition technology. Now that's what they're also bringing in across the whole U.S., uh, was a chip embedded in the plate itself, in fact, and automatically reads on all the, the police and, and even cameras underneath bridges. They get them all to, to, to register. And it says here, the, um, the jubilant woman cop who's been uh, given special responsibility for how all the roads across England and Wales are policed, uh, says, uh, says that... Um, it was well, well worth it, she says. Declaring that now had no hiding place, she said, we want to protect the public from the misery they cause, that the gangsters cause. By targeting them in this way, we're able to, to develop a robust system to tackle the issue uh, in the future. So it just makes you wonder, you know, uh, they really didn't catch that many of folk at all. And what they did was pull off 250 dodgy or unsafe vehicles off the road. National blitz for that and to catch a few uh, low-level people who were probably in the country illegally or wanted on something else somewhere else. Also, this privatization under this big, massive, non-elected uh, system like the, the IMF, the Bank for National Settlements, and the, Global, and the World Bank too, they're privatizing the world, as you well know. That's a part of the plan. Portugal's forthcoming privatization plan, it says here. In order to fully comply with agreement entered into between Portugal, the European Council, the European Central Bank, and the International Monetary Fund, the three latter commonly referred to as Troika, commonly designated as Memorandum of Understanding on Specific Economic Policy Conditionality, currently in its seventh revision, the Portuguese government continues to implement its privatization program of several state-owned companies of the energy water and waste management, communications, insurance, transportation, shipbuilding, and TMT sectors. This is what they're doing. They're plundering the planet, folks, the big, big banks, and they'll get these, they'll get these private institutions, taxpayer-funded, taxpayer-set-up systems for peanuts. For peanuts. They've done this across the world, Britain, everywhere else, and uh, what a great thing it is for these big private moguls to take over uh, for, for pretty well nothing. 
So the government will further consider expanding the privatization programs to include additional companies and assets for sale or concession in 2013. However, to this date, and according to the information available, the Portuguese government's privatization program includes the following companies, and they name some of them here. Now, I bet they're already spoken for, probably by guys in New York, big corporations based in New York, who often buy things across the world, the, the, the water supplies, uh, every, you name it, gas, electricity, everything, as, as they destroy uh, all, the, all the national sovereignty of these countries. And remember, too, the big blitz they had years ago for everybody to vote yes for joining the EU. Everyone was going to be walking around in a Roman toga down the road with very little work to do and living so well that they'd have to worry about what to do with their recreation time. And in reality, of course, they plunder and bankrupt all these nations. That's the world you're really living in. That's what the World Trade Organization is really all about. And the Bank for International Settlements, etc. And also, just to finish it off, in Tokyo, uh, where they're really, really confused, because in Tokyo, um, during World War II, I should say, in the U.S., they'd already devised a whole new culture for the Japanese to destroy even the history or memory of their old culture. And it really did destroy. Plus they had uh, massive indoctrination in feminism and every other kind of thing you can imagine. And promiscuity has been pushed out front as well uh, to be the same as all the other countries now. And, of course, legalize abortion and all that. But, it, but I've mentioned about uh, Bernays before, Ed Bernays and his advertising, how he created the advertising system of the U.S., the Consumer Society. He'd be proud of this. Tokyo, Tokyo Young Women's Thighs are now used as advertising space. I'll put this link up tonight because you don't have to force these women to go and do this now. They're also happy to show off their thighs and get paid for it. For the TED Talks, the TED, TED Talks for advertising them. From Hamish, my dog, and myself from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me, your God, or your gods go with you.